Welcome back to another episode of the Investigate podcast. It's your host, Arjun Paliwal here, and the head of research of an, at Investigate Buyers Agency. So this episode is all about why I personally, outside of my own dream home in the future, will never buy a new build property again. And I say again, because I've made this mistake before. Now, if you're tuning into the show and you're wondering, hold on a minute, big call here, Arjun. I've seen many work out. Well, we'll take a pause and actually let you know that I've seen many work out too. But in terms of the ones that don't work out, they remain the majority. And so in this episode, we'll go through why, but not just by me handpicking any certain downside example, I'm going to actually look into the deep dive of my own purchase that I made many, many years ago before I started to get deeper into learning real estate data, figuring out what works, what doesn't work, and actually go through the case study of my own deal. And this will clearly show you why you shouldn't and what sort of things you should look out for when considering it. We're also going to go deep into the world of creating a brief and where it goes wrong from a new build search and what many people look for when searching for property. We're going to go through, well, Arjun, is there some bias attached to this? Because obviously your business doesn't do new build properties. And so as a result, are you then just on one side of the fence because the business benefits from doing so? I'll go through that bias and be very transparent on it. Lastly, we're going to also go through when it does work out, what usually makes it work out? And so we'll go into some of the risks and things as well to give you a two-sided opinion. Let's jump straight in and welcome to another episode of the Investigate Podcast. As you're thinking of new build property and want to know whether it's the right fit or not, I'd like you to take a deep dive into my own personal example. Now, I want to paint the picture of what was painted to me and see if this sounds quite exciting to you. Number one, high depreciation. Claim back those taxes and be able to ensure that you get an improved tax return. You're a high income owner, so get this back as much as you can. Number two is maintenance-free, hardly any maintenance or things to think about. Just buy, own the property, build it, whatever, and you're going to be in good hands. Number three, good rental yields. Number four, a major capital city. Number five, lots of infrastructure. And number six, two incomes are better than one. Why not look at that? Heck, let's even give you a number seven, affordable pricing. All of these, how do they sound to you? Well, they sounded pretty good to me. And at the time, I felt like this was the way forward for my portfolio. For yourself, this might be what you're hearing in the world out there from new build property. Now, I'm here to tell you that I heard all of those things back in the earliest days of my investing, and I felt that this was the one. Unfortunately, this was one of, if not the worst portfolio uh, performers or properties in my portfolio in terms of performance-wise. In this episode, I'm going to unpack why you should totally avoid investing in new build property, and we're going to go deeper into what's happening in this case study example of my own portfolio. Let me start off with actually a bit of a screen share. And this screen share will take you through what I'm actually seeing when it comes to dissecting my decision I made in 2016. And when you look at this decision I made, it's important to understand that I go into what I basically shared with you, the brief and what made it so exciting, but actually start going now down into the detail of why it didn't work. And let's firstly start with area. 
I'm going to zoom out and I think the first thing you can clearly see is a lot of land available. And I'm here to correct you that land available itself is not the simplest way to look at supply because during the next year and the year after where I made far better decisions, I want to show you the land available in those regions. Let's take a look at Ballarat. And while I'm bringing this up for those who are tuning into this podcast on audio, I totally recommend you get a chance to check this out on the visual. This is on our YouTube page going up there as well, but the audio should be able to paint a good picture as well. Now, Ballarat, as you can see, there's a lot of land around here as well. And the same with Bendigo. Quite common, actually, in most, if not all, regional centers to have a lot of surrounding land. And even the same with some of our major centers like Melbourne on the far east and the far west. So why did I want to point this out? Well, the key here is that, you know, many people are quick to jump at the land surrounding an area as the bad reason for why it didn't grow. The truth is that's not the case because Ballarat and Bendigo performed substantially during the same time period where this property in the suburb of Brassel did not perform so well in the same time period. Now, this suburb and surrounding suburbs did perform well and I will give you some insights of when they performed well and what type of assets they performed well in. But in my case, it did not. Going back from 2016, I purchased this property in the low 400,000s to now actually having this property sold during or later parts of the boom, the best parts of the boom technically, because as we know, 2022, some prices pulled back in Brisbane. Uh, in Ipswich, it still continued to rise, but many parts of Brisbane pulled back. I sold this property late 2021, so this should technically be the best time, right? Well, wrong. It only moved up from low 400s to higher 400s during that same time period. Therefore, not only making a break even over four to five years, but also making me realize what went wrong. And I was very able to, very easily able to dissect that, which I'm doing here for you today. But I was also able to make far better decisions in my portfolio that have taken into that $12 million in holdings today. So let's have a look at this. Now, the key thing is it wasn't just the land because I already showed you Bendigo, Ballarat, where our clients, including myself, did very well in the years following. But the key thing here is that there is a rate of release. Rate of release is an important point. And in this case, Brassel had a lot coming and a lot there. By a lot there, I want to point out the things to do with existing supply because people isolate supply with just new builds only. But the truth is you've got to look at it relatively because new builds is one component, establishes another. Buyers who are majority owner occupies don't dissect it into perfect like ratios like certain investors or number driven people would. They just see total stock, whatever's available in total in the suburb. And so when established supply was high during that time period, as well as building approvals in the pipeline, then it became a recipe for low capital growth. In this particular case, if we go back to 2017, you'll see here that there was no real undersupply in this particular suburban postcode. 16, 17, and 18. Very much a flat line in terms of houses for sale. Yes, there was some trend down for some highs of 2012 and 13, but not enough to make it anything meaningful. You can see here in the postcode later years of 2021, 22, and 23, the supply continued to tumble. And so you might be wondering, hey, well, with this tumbling of supply in 2021, why didn't you make money? Well, we'll go through that as well. Now, the next thing here is my rents. I told you about the brief being very high yields. In fact, it was renting for high 500s and I purchased in the low 400s. Another great sign, right? Well, not quite. Rents for houses in the suburb continue to rise, whereas rents in this particular asset type being a dual occupancy that was new build 
did not. Firstly, we can see vacancy rates were pretty elevated and then they fell back down. But again, when they fell back down, houses around me continue to see rents rising, whereas this did not move as much, which I'll also come back to. The first thing I want to point out is actually the asset type can also make a difference. I, in the same market of uh, the Bendigo Ballarats, helped people buy dual properties that did do well. However, in this case, it didn't do so well. And this is for my own portfolio here in Brussel. Why is that the case? Well, you can see just in this visual, I can see over 20 in just one street, dual occupancies built one after the other. Now, why is that important to note? Owner occupiers were very few, or if not any actually, uh, the buyers of these dual occupancy properties. They would have been like me, investors, buying new builds, dual occupancies, and hoping for this rental cash flow, cash cow to be the savior to our portfolios. Unfortunately, everyone was thinking that, so the whole street was built up of these, and as a result, everyone was investors, everyone listing for rent at similar time periods. So instead of my rents growing, I actually dipped back in 10% in rents before rising in 10%, so my net gain was close to nothing during the holding period, if not a little bit behind, actually, when you consider inflation and other aspects. And how you can quickly see that is just a satellite view here. All the backyards have split fences, but the street view just has the one house. So I think the key here is that you can see it's a lot here on this side. If you go further down to this side, a few here as well. So it continues to add up. Now, this is an important point because you see, during the following years, houses continue to pick up and up with more popularity in the suburb, but even down to the asset type being the dual occupancies, new builds with high frequency of them, they didn't really move up. So instead, I'd got the good starting point I wanted of tax, low maintenance, all, all that sort of stuff, but it actually wasn't going that well when you think of low growth, low resale gains, and low rental gains. And this is why starting points of rental yield aren't all that. Now let's take a moment to actually talk about the point of the depreciation, the taxes, and all that sort of stuff that you think are good things. But I want you to take a step back and just imagine you've got two forces pushing at each other. One is depreciating building value, and it's coming down and down and down, and this is pushing down the building value because it started off very new, very shiny, and like a car, when you get it out of the, sh uh, the uh, showroom, things fall off pretty quickly. On the opposite side, you've got land values. Land values rising extremely fast, or in this case, not so much, but they're trying to push back to those building depreciating components. Now, on an older house, you don't have that pushback from the land value needing to be as much because the depreciation has already come off for most of it. And so as a result, you might think you're getting this benefit back, but I learned that the hard way that when I sold, I had to claw back many of those benefits and give it back as I'd claimed them, but then now I have to give them back upon sale. And if you want to take a pause just there and talk about, hey, uh, accountant, Arjun told me about this claiming depreciation, which is great, but then when I sell, I have to give it back. Could you explain it in more detail? I'll let them do that, but just make sure you pose that question to them so you can understand what I mean and why it's not all what it's made out to be. Now, in this component here, I want to share something around tax reform and what it is in terms of the recent article that's come out by the HIA, Housing Industry of Australia, or the uh, Industry Association of Australia. And so what you can see here is that there's a core component where in 2019, the Centre for International Economics released a research report on taxation in the housing sector, which identified the costs associated with bringing land 
and housing to the market. And they provided the breakdown of the costs as either resource costs, regulatory costs, statutory taxes, or excessive charges. Now, this is huge. The research showed that the combined cost of these taxes, regulatory costs, and excessive charges equate to 50% of the cost of a new house and land package. And it's since worsened. Just take a moment to digest that. In summary, what I just said is that that shiny new build home that you think you're paying four or 500k for in terms of the build component, you're getting a really quality home build. Firstly, it's likely less quality than what it was of the days uh, that are well beyond us or well behind us. Number two is that it's made up of a lot of taxes and less of the actual resource cost to build that property. Because this is something that many people don't consider. This is something that is also causing many of these costs to be higher than what they should be. So really, it's an imaginary cost to the public. So what I mean by that is it exists in the back end, but to the public, it feels like you're buying this house for that much, when really the house and its resources and materials aren't truly that much. And so this is obviously causing a blocker, but this does two things. If these blockers ever get removed or rejigged, yes, I'm sure builders would want to make up that margin really quickly. But this, the main thing is, is that those costs may come down to bring a more flood of supply to the market, which doesn't help some of these areas. But I guess the main thing is it shows you that when you think you're buying something of value, you're truly just chucking your money into taxes. Now let's go into the next thing. The key thing here to talk about is actually commissions. Now, I mentioned to you earlier on the start of the discussion that, hey, there is a bias attached to the fact that investigate buyers agency buys established properties, not new built properties. So Arjun, you're just like other buyers agency, you're anti-new build. I want to take a moment to really go into this because it's important to understand. As a buyers agent, or even if I wanted to open up as a separate entity, technically, there could be ways for me to sell these new build packages two clients. And I would actually end up receiving double to triple of what I currently charge clients for our services. So just take that for a minute. I have an earning capacity to have double to triple to what I currently have on a per property basis. And at the same time, instead of my client paying the fee, the developer could pay that. Why don't you take a moment to digest that and just realize Arjun wins, business wins, developer wins. So who loses? Well, guess what? That's you. And so there's a reason why even though I can, I don't, because I have a fundamental belief of both personal experiences and people's portfolios that I've seen and what data actually shows, not isolated examples, en masse. You have more chances to get it wrong and some of the examples I've shared with you were some of them in terms of building supply, existing supply, rental supply, types of dwelling types, and also when it comes down to the owner ratio to investor ratio, what's happening in some of these suburbs. I told you about a perfect brief at the start. New build, depreciation, low maintenance, high yield, affordability, capital city. It all sounded great, but when you dive deep into this example and you flip it on its head and realize that even a house in the same suburb would have performed better from a resale value and rental growth in comparison to the asset that I had. And the key thing here was that every time I put my one for rent, There'd be many other dual occupancies that weren't keen to try too much and avoid some of those vacancies. And that's kind of what caused those rents to be impacted. Things may have changed now all, all the way into 2023 for that specific area, but that is what we call opportunity cost, where I could have made that decision far better, which I did in following purchases, 
in established, more data-driven locations and areas. And this is something that's really key to understand. Now, the last thing to share with you is what I said earlier. Well, Arjun, what about the opposite? When have they worked well? And if they have worked well, why don't you just do those? Well, this is the key. When it comes to new building areas, and I'm talking about new building areas, I'm not talking about a new build home in an established area. I'm talking about new build areas overall. These areas have little to no data. They're using fundamentals that aren't necessarily going to drive the area's growth. They may or may not, and this this is what makes it very difficult. Imagine you're going through a suburb and you don't have any understanding of owner occupiers versus investors. The level of trends from supply release, three-year averages, five-year averages, vacancy rates, demographics, key things that you may consider on your journey. All of these things are being built. So in fact, you're actually fingers crossed and hoping for it to go well. And then from that perspective, you need to wait three, five, seven years to see if your decision came out well and has the factors for it to do well ahead. This isn't the case for established housing. In established housing, trends are built out over years and years in established suburbs. And as a result, you can spot differences in trends because you have a long tail of data to review. And so when we are researching markets and making decisions to invest, there's been a track record of our ability to pick the right locations from jumping on national media and saying, hey guys, I know there's a lot of interest rate declines, uh, increases actually, and price declines are thought of here. But hey, Adelaide will be the best performing capital city in 2022, likely even double digits. That occurred. Even on the opposite, Sydney would decline in 2022, six to nine or six to eight percent plus, which is what we said. And that also happened on the weekend today show. Going through to, you know, Sydney's data and we said, hey, look on news.com.au in December 2022 and macro business, uh, December, January 2022, 2023, we said that expect in 2023, March, April, Sydney's house prices to really recover quickly and gave the six reasons why. That's also happened now as well as the data shows. So I guess the key thing is, why are we able to make these decisions going back to regional Tasmania, regional Victoria, Brisbane, Adelaide in different cycles and times, uh, to regional finals Queensland and how that continued to move forward? There's so many examples here we can raise because we had far more data to make controlled decisions. These data points don't always show themselves. So really it is a spray and hope. And for many people, it doesn't work out. For some people it does. And this is the key thing that many fail to understand. Instead of looking at the isolated examples of what does work, or even in my case, maybe what doesn't work, take a step back and go, can I pinpoint all the data points, the metrics that make it work or allow it allow it to work. And the truth is, if you had 10 points on a checklist to hit, I might be able to hit 8 to 10 of those on an established market by reviewing what I think makes sense for it to be drivers. But you might be able to only see 4 to 7 of those because the market's not even there yet or it's not even fully established. So you're leaving it in the hands of developers to be able to stage price and increase it lot by lot. And you're leaving it in the hands of owner occupies to either love this area or in some cases not love this area and they don't come in raging with demand, especially if you're unsure of the different mix of developers and what may come out. And this requires too much micro knowledge now. And by this time, you're already falling in love with the process, the area that you've talked yourself into it. So in this case, is it really a data-driven decision? Probably not. In summary, I just want you to take a look at this and go, well, Arjun, you've answered the points around your bias in the business, and I'm sure you'd love to make more money and sell more packages and do that. But there's a reason why you don't do that, because you have a belief and facts around 
what actually performs to what doesn't. I've also shared with you my own example around a specific new build purchase I made in 2016, resold late 2021 and didn't make much on it, if anything at all. I just want to share this so you can avoid certain mistakes and things that sound amazing at service level, like high depreciation, high yield, affordability, low maintenance, and realize that you're likely paying for the depreciation back when you resell this property in the future, or you're getting this depreciation, but it's fighting against rising land values, creating, I guess, a period of little to no growth. And lastly, you're just fingers crossing and hoping for this to work, even with all those nice sounding things that may not. And especially one more bonus point to throw in is a reflection on some of those key things that asset types in a new build market, lots of investor activity, and even bringing it down to how half a new build up to half can be commissions, taxes, and these sorts of things, which means that you've only really bought half a house. Now, there might be examples out there that you like that you found that one did really well. And if that's happened to you in your portfolio, that's nothing wrong with that. You should celebrate your successes because it's getting you closer to your goals. But if you're like the majority that we see with over 500 purchases experience and seeing Many, many investors in their portfolios as part of our portfolio mapping sessions see them stagnate and sit there. Then I guess this can help you in understanding why and also help you create a brief that's more important to your goals. What's going to see rents grow? What's going to see prices grow? What's going to see competition be created due to undersupply? And lastly, how can you then diversify your portfolio across the country with established houses to create established data sets for you to make the best decision? Hope this helps. Another episode on Investigate Podcast and tune into the next one.